Well, good Monday morning. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Business and Legal Week in Review. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and this is utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. Well, today we're going to be talking about Amazon suing people over fake online reviews, lumber liquidators, Prince and the Dancing Baby, some beer money talk, a little bit about Beck's packaging, and then Real Housewives star Heather Thompson and her lawsuit. But before we do, I want to tell you a little bit about a company that I love, Oobly.com. That's O-U-B-L-Y.com. Now, do you need business cards that will make a memorable impression? Then look no further because Oobly.com has got you covered. Oobly.com offers visually stunning edge-painted premium business cards. These business cards are printed on a variety of exceptional premium paper with free edge printing included in every order. Simply choose from 10 edge coloring options or submit your own custom color. No matter what you choose, you can be sure that your edge business cards will look amazing from every angle. And for a limited time, you can save 10% off your first order by using this code. It's O-U-B-L-Y, U-T-L-10 during checkout. That's O-U-B-L-Y, U-T-L-10 at checkout. And that's oobly.com. You know, funny story. People have said, you know, recently, oh, all kinds of things are, are dead. Traditional marketing is dead. Business cards are dead. And that's totally, totally not true. And as a matter of fact, I will shamelessly admit that I was watching an episode of Bravo's um, Million Dollar Listing LA, and three of these high-end real estate brokers walk up to a house and leave a business card, and a day later, they get a call and they ended up getting a listing simply because they left their business card. And you know, the difference between using a kind of, you know, low cost, junky business card is that it looks junky. Oobly.com looks premium because they are. And so check out Oobly.com if you're in the market for premium business cards. All right, let's jump into the stories. We've got Amazon filing a lawsuit that shows that fake online reviews are actually a big problem. This is coming from time.com. Amazon filed a lawsuit against more than 1,114 individuals who allegedly have posted fake product re reviews on the site. Amazon claims many of the defendants have operated mostly out in the open, listing their services and answering ads via gig site, fiverr.com, to write glowing five-star reviews for five bucks a pop. Now, unfortunately, a very small minority of sellers and manufacturers sometimes try to gain unfair competitive advantages for their products on Amazon.com, and one such method is by creating false misleading and inauthentic customer reviews, the lawsuit states. Amazon has conducted an extensive investigation of the defendant's activities on Fiverr, including purchasing reviews for products and communicating directly with some of the defendants. The suit states that even though fake reviews are small in number, they significantly undermine the trust that consumers and the vast majority of sellers and manufacturers place in Amazon. But is the rate of false misleading and inauthentic customer reviews truly small? Well, previously, uh, previous research estimates show that 30% of all product reviews are fake. That's a huge number. That seems pretty big enough to have real influence in a product's overall rating and higher than the projected rate of fake online reviews for other things like hotels and restaurants, which are typically 10% to 20%. Now, the Amazon crackdown is hardly the first investigation focused 
on outing fake online reviews. In 2013, the auto research site Edmunds.com sued an online reputation company for promising to flood such sites as Yelp, Cars.com, and Google Plus with fake online reviews of car dealerships. Yelp has likewise unearthed conspiracies of local businesses agreeing to rub each other's backs in the form of swapping, swapping five-star reviews all around. For years, software engineers have been working on algorithms to detect fake online reviews and put a stop to them. But based on Amazon's lawsuit, which is the first to target individuals rather than websites where short-term freelancers can be hired, apparently there's still a market for them. Many of the listings at Fiverr.com are for jobs in which the reviews are blatantly fake based on no experience whatsoever with the product or service. One freelancer named as defendant wasn't even promising to make up the review, instead offering to companies in need of rating assistance, quote, please write a review, then I'll post it, end quote, end quote. As of last Monday afternoon, there were still plenty of listings at Fiverr.com for freelancers who will happily write five-star reviews for any business paying five bucks. Others have grown more careful about how to generate positive reviews. The gig site freelancer.com used to have a category of jobs titled simply fake review writer, but now its review writing section tells businesses that the best marketing ploy is to pay reviewers after you've let them try out your product. Judging how these sites pay, however, it's hard to believe that the reviewer is going to spend much time with each product if indeed reviewers even get their hands on them at all. Now, this highlights a potential, potential, an actual problem that we're facing. As consumers, we flock to the internet for everything, including product reviews. I know that myself, when I was looking for, you know, just about anything, I remember looking when my, my kids were smaller, looking on Amazon for stroller reviews, or looking on Amazon for something as simple as a backpack. And you know, you read these reviews and, and you tend, well, at least I do, I tend to rely on them. And I think that I can spot the ones that are fake, but I can't promise you that. And so I'll, re I'll read a, um, you know, a listing and I'll think to myself, well, this looks great. Look at all these people that review it. And, and you know, even with, with me having an eye out for a fake review, I can get duped. You see it all the time on uh, health food supplements, you see it with certain furniture pieces, and you can just, you know, only do so much before you get sucked in because the reviews look so good and you start thinking to yourself, well, how can there be so many positive reviews that can't all be fake? And, and that's me. There are tons of people out there, more like my wife, who, you know, doesn't even really think that any of the reviews are fake. Uh, she just reads them and thinks, wow, you know, people post this and, and that's what it is. And that's what it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, you know, people think that they can make a buck. Well, in this case, five bucks using Fiverr.com to post these ads. And it really does become deceptive. Now, this Amazon lawsuit's interesting because they did not know and they still don't know the names of all of the people that are advertising this fake review site or, or the fake review option. And so what Amazon is doing is that they're, well, they filed a lawsuit, but they're going to be sending a subpoena to Fiverr.com and requesting that Fiverr.com release the names of the individuals who were offering to post fake reviews. Now, 
as of last week, Fiverr.com still had fake reviews. As of this morning, there are still some fake reviewers out there. I think that's going to change quickly, and I think that Fiverr.com itself might get involved in policing that. I think that uh, a lot of of, of these uh, sort of online marketplace freelance sites are going to have to kind of step it up a bit just to make sure that they don't end up getting sued. Because now here, it's not really Fiverr.com because they're just facilitating this, this avenue for people to advertise their services. But, you know, if they know that these things are existing on their site, an argument can be made later on down the line to say that, hey, you knowingly permitted these fake reviewers on your site, and therefore you have some negligence on your part. So I would imagine that this is going to change. You know, separately from that, though, and more in the business sense or the business standpoint, why have a fake review? Because, you know, it might look good. And I, I know a lot of people that will write books, for example, and they'll have people post reviews, not even read the book. And then, you know, the book sales look good for the first month and then they tank because the people that really do buy the book based on those fake reviews, they read it and they realize that it's crap and then they post a negative review. And that is just, you know, I think very foolish to go ahead and, and to, to paste a fake review or to post a fake review about your product. So we'll see what happens here, uh, whether or not there's going to be any monetary damages. I think that monetary damages, that's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to prove that. But certainly injunctive relief, uh, I think they'll be able to, to act, act, you know, easily, easily obtain. All right, so uh, Courthouse News now telling us about lumber liquidators. They're, if you watch TV at all, they're always on TV. They're that lumber um, sale store. I guess it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a store. It's kind of like a Home Depot. And all they sell is lumber. So lumber liquidators to pay $13 million in a guilty plea. According to courthousenews.com, lumber liquidators pleaded guilty on Thursday to environmental crimes related to the illegal importation of hardwood flooring. The Justice Department announced Thursday. Now, under the terms of the agreement, the company will pay $13.13 million, including a $7.8 million criminal fine, and more than $1.23 million in community service payments. According to court documents, lumber liquidators imported flooring manufactured in China that had been illegally logged in eastern Russia. Lumber liquidators' race to profit resulted in the plundering of forests and wildlife habitat that is continued could spell the end of the Siberian tiger, said Assistant Attorney General John Cruden of the Justice Department's Environment and Natural Resources Division. A statement of facts that accompanied the plea says that lumber liquidators purchased wood flooring that contained oak harvested in Far East Russia. The Justice Department says lumber liquidator employees were aware that such purchases posed a compliance issue. Indeed, the company's own internal guidance lists Russian oak in the highest category of product risk. They nevertheless increased their purchases of Russian oak until around the time of the government's execution of a search warrant at Lumber Liquidators Virginia office, and this is back in September of 2013. The court documents go on to say that even when it became obvious that the company was importing illegally harvested timber from Far East Russia, and the documentation was fudged to hide the fact, fact, lumber liquidator officials ignored all red flags 
and failed to exercise due care and continued the shipments. Um, the settlement in unrelated is unrelated to a Justice Department probe in allegations that lumber liquidators knowingly imported wood products that contain unsafe levels of, of, of formaldehyde. Since those allegations came to light in a report by CBS News 60 Minutes program, the company has been slapped with a series of lawsuits from both consumers and its shareholders, the latter of which claim lumber liquidators' environmental misdeeds cost them 13% of their stock equity. In a statement, John Presley, lumber liquidators' chairman, said, we are pleased to reach this settlement and resolve a legacy issue related to the Lacey Act. We will continue to focus on strengthening lumber liquidators across every area of the organization and executing on our value pro uh, proposition to improve operational efficiencies and deliver value to our stakeholders, so says Presley. So, you know, here you've got a, a another company, very similar to what, I mean, think about what we've been talking about last few weeks. What does it sound like to you? Doesn't it almost sound like? Yes, Volkswagen, a massive company who figured that they could just do whatever they want. Volkswagen, as you know, they created that software workaround to avoid emissions testing. So not only does Volkswagen hate the environment, but apparently so does lumber liquidators. Um, and I think that this is something that is really or should not really be that surprising. Oftentimes, you know, I think these large companies can be very profitable by doing things that might not be in strict compliance with the law. And it's just a matter of, you know, do they get caught? It's this, this risk to benefit analysis. I told you that years ago when I was in law school, there was a case in one of these civil procedure classes that the, they, they taught. And it really involved a, um, a dock owner who owned multiple docks. And the issue really was insurance. Do you pay the high insurance premiums to make sure that everything is, is safe and covered? Or do you not save that money? And then in the event that something happens, you'll pay it out then. And it was this whole sort of discussion about, do you do the right thing? Okay, so that's arguably getting the insurance. Or do you take a chance? And it comes down to what's the more, you know, cost-effective, profitable measure. And that's, you know, basically what's going on here because uh, this this whole idea of, of import, uh, importing the Russian wood, I mean, they, at least that's what the documents say. Now, I'm sure, as with most settlement agreements, that there's a waiver and denial of liability. Um, but, you know, the reality of it is, that somebody knew something, there's enough allegations contained in the court documents to show that. Uh, so, you know, you don't really know, you know, how extensive this was, but you certainly know that something was going on. And then separate from that, you've got the formaldehyde issue. So, you know, you, you've got to wonder, is this sort of activity just across the board in these big companies or is it limited to some of these these smaller um, instances? And I think that we probably all will agree that at some point you could probably find some inconsistencies, improprieties, or at the very least compliance violations in just about every company in the United States. 
All right, now Prince and a dancing baby still kicking around in court, courthousenews.com, explains that the Ninth Circuit sided with a mother whose dancing baby YouTube video drew ire from Prince's label, but that hasn't stopped both the mom and Universal from now seeking a rehearing. The case dates back to 2007 when Stephanie Lentz uploaded a video of her toddler dancing along to the muffled sound of Prince's Let's Go Crazy. Universal ordered the video taken down for infringement under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and Lentz sued. Her lawyers, who were provide, uh, provided by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, argued that Universal abused the DMCA, which gives meager protections to recipients of takedown notices if, under Section 512F, the sender knowingly misrepresents that the material is infringing. The Ninth Circuit agreed last month that Universal failed to consider fair use before issuing its DMCA notice, raising a triable issue as to whether the label formed a subjective good faith belief that the song's use was illegal. The decision, signed by U.S. Circuit Judge Richard Talman and joined in full by U.S. Circuit Judge Mary McGuire, Maguia, Magua, uh, I murdered Mary's name, Mary, forgive me, says others cannot avoid considering fair use when issuing takedown notices under the DMCA. Talman said the court's hands were tied, however, by Rossi via MPAA precedent from 2004 that requires copyright holders to have a subjective good faith basis that the use has infringed upon the copyright. We therefore judge Universal's actions by the subjective beliefs it formed about the video Talman wrote. The panel remanded the case for a jury trial in U.S. District Court in San Jose. U.S. Circuit Judge Milan Smith partially dissented, however, saying his colleagues interpreted the knowingly part of Section 512F too restrictively. Universal argues uh, that to uh, it, it means a party must subjectively believe that the facts it asserts is false in order to be liable under the section. If this is indeed the meaning of Rossi, it is difficult to see how Lentz can possibly prevail. But while EFF initially called the ruling an important win for fair use, they now say the lead decision failed to settle the rights and responsibilities of speakers and copyright holders. Lentz's attorneys note that Section 512F is largely important if it is not construed in a way that will actually protect users. Many copyright owners unreasonably believe that virtually all use of copyrighted works must be licensed. This according to uh, Michael Kwan of Kecker and Van Ness. He says that fair use exists in significant part to make such unreasonable beliefs Make, uh, make sure such unreasonable beliefs don't thwart new creativity. In particular, it protects uses such as parody and criticism that copyright owners are unlikely to license. Allowing a copyright owner to hide behind uh, unreasonable beliefs undermines this critical protection. Universal petitioned for a panel rehearing the same day, claims that from the beginning, Lentz lacked standing to bring her case because she never alleged any financial loss or injury. So that's getting to some of the technical issues here, but let's hit the main issue, which is, did she violate copyright law? So Prince, obviously, the artist formerly known as Prince, who was later then renowned as Prince, he doesn't want you using Let's Go Crazy because that makes him crazy. 
And here you got this woman who has a dancing baby, which was cute. I think we all remember the video. And, you know, he got his song in the background, and he's going to sue and say, you infringed on my copyright. Now, there are exceptions to copyright protection. And we talked about two of them here in the story, one of them being parody and the other one being criticism. So let's say, for example, that you want to be a music review site and you want to review some of the music by artists. And you're going to critique the sound or, or the music. Well, now you've got a massive dilemma. Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to play snippets of somebody's music that you're not licensed to play and critique or criticize them? And that is arguably what we're talking about with respect to you know, your rights to criticize or critique copyright. Now, it goes back to the issue of will the copyright holder willingly give you permission to critique their work or criticize their work? And I don't know of anybody that would say, yeah, go ahead, use my song, and then tell me how much I suck. I don't think that's going to happen. So it's a, a, a very, very case-by-case -case specific issue that we look at to determine whether or not there is infringing use. But the other one that's a little bit easier to deal with is parody. And parody is, is something that we see all the time. You know, you've got Star Wars parody on YouTube. You've got Muppets. You've got, you name it, you've got it. And it exists because parody is an exception to copyright law, if it's done, of, of course, correctly. Now, in this case, I mean, here you've got a woman who is listening to the song, puts it on YouTube to show how funny the baby is, I think that to say she violated copyright law, I think is overreaching. I think that, you know, this, this constitutes, in my opinion, fair use, but you can just see how, you know, even simple things nowadays can be blown up into federal cases. And I, and I, I say that, uh, you know, in jest, but so it's true, it is a federal case all because Prince didn't like the fact that the song was used or universal. So what does that mean for you? Well, unless you are, you know, going to hire a lawyer to review every single video that you post up on YouTube, I would suggest that you just, you know, use common sense. I think that you need to limit certain activities. So for example, would I recommend that you ever post something of the NFL? No way. First of all, the NFL, by the way, is known to be extremely litigious and aggressive in enforcing its protection of its mark and copyright. So would I ever you know, record a snippet of a football game and post that up? I wouldn't. I would never take that chance. But you know, if you've got your, your, your kid doing something funny and music's on in the background, would I say take that down? No, probably not. Now, you know, whether or not you're going to be sued for some sort of trademark infringement or copyright infringement, well, I don't know. But you know, I, I think it's, it's almost sad in a, in a way because it seems to me that since the Napster era, right? Remember at the beginning of the internet or towards the beginning of the internet, Napster was that online file sharing site where you could download which is now illegally download songs and not pay for them. And, you know, I think that artists like Metallica, for example, remember 
Lars Ulrich, the drummer for Metallica, speaking out strongly against Napster in a lawsuit. I think that artists feel burned. And it's, it's really a tough situation because we've talked to a lot of musicians. Lily Virginia, we talked to uh, Nate, um, uh, you know, the, the, the modern day troubadour. And, you know, I, I think that their feelings are, you know, it, it kind of hits home because their feelings are basically, look, we don't want somebody to steal our music. Um, but that's why somebody like Nate Namegard will give the music out and he's asking for donations. It's a completely different structure and model of, of the business. There's part of me that says, all right, I understand why an artist would get mad if their songs are being used and they're not getting paid for it. But you know what I would say? Go after those streaming services that aren't paying you right. Don't go after somebody like a mom who has a song in the background showing her kid dancing. That doesn't seem fair to me. It doesn't seem right. You know, go after the, the big revenue issue, not some mom who posts to her kid online. So now, uh, if I was the artist, if I was Prince, um, Maybe I'd be annoyed. I don't know. It's hard to put yourself in those shoes because I just see it as, you know, a parent. And, and that's something that maybe my wife would do. You know, want to have a little fun, put the kid on YouTube, dancing to a song. I don't know. I, I think we've gone overboard in this world. I think that everybody has an eye for litigation. And it just makes the world a very, very unfriendly, unwelcoming place. It's sad. All right. You know, when you're that sad, you're going to open up a case of beer and drown your sorrows. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Beer money, $20 million settlement in a lawsuit over Beck's packaging. And this by Wavy.com. Uh, U.S. drinkers of Beck's beer who thought the American-made brew they were buying was still a fancy century-old German import can get cash payments under a $20 million settlement approved Tuesday in a class action lawsuit over deceptive packaging. On tap, people with proof they bought Becks at retail outlets could get up to $50 per household. That buys a lot more beer. Those without receipts can qualify for a $12 maximum, still a couple cans, and claims may be filed through November 20th via a court-approved website. Let me give you that. It is BecksBeerSettlement.com. The settlement approved by U.S. Magistrate Judge John O'Sullivan came in a lawsuit filed in 2013 by several Bex drinkers who noticed there was almost no visible made-in-the-USA language on the beer's packaging, even though it has been brewed in St. Louis, Missouri, since 2012. Instead, in big letters, the Anheuser-Busch in Bev brand emphasized its German quality, noted that it was made under the German purity law of 1516 and originated in Bremen, Germany. All may be true, said plaintiff's attorney Tucker Ronzetti, but the point of the lawsuit is that a beer made in St. Louis shouldn't be passed off as the import it once was with premium pricing to boot. They realized they had been deceived, Ronzetti said of the plaintiffs. This packaging didn't really explain that it was, in fact, a domestic beer. There were some U.S.-made language on the package and bottles, but it was difficult to find. For example, a Bex drinker had to turn a 12-pack upside down to find the country of origin on the box's bottom. Still, U.S. regulators approve the designs. 
The original Beck's Brewery, founded in 1873, remained in the same family until 2002 when it was purchased by the Belgium conglomerate, now known as Anheuser-Busch InBev. Court documents show that Anheuser-Busch decided for cost reasons to shift brewing for Beck's U.S. market in 2012 to St. Louis, where the company makes Budweiser and other beers. Yet the Beck's packaging still emphasized Germany, something Ronzetti's lawsuit claimed was misleading and false advertising. One Miami plaintiff, Francisco Rene Marty, said in court papers he brought a, bought a six-pack or 12-pack of Beck's beer every week, partially because it was supposedly brewed in Germany using local ingredients that gave it a distinctive taste. Marty said that he would not have purchased Beck's had he known that Anheuser-Busch's representations were false. Really? Anheuser-Busch initially tried to get the lawsuit thrown out, but finally agreed to the settlement earlier this year and changed its packaging to more pre prominently show the Beck's is now made in the U.S. Under the settlement, the company does not admit any wrongdoing. We reached a compromise in the Beck's labeling case, said John Socott, Anheuser-Busch Vice President for Marketing. We believe our labeling, packaging, and marketing of Beck's has always been truthful, transparent, and in compliance with all legal requirements. An estimated 1.7 million U.S. households could qualify for settlement payments. According to court documents, in 2012, the company sold more than 2.6 million dollars or million cases in Beck's of Beck's in the U.S. at an average price of about $27 each. Ron Zetti, who negotiated a similar settlement, settlement last year involving Japan-originated Kirin beer, also owned by Anheuser-Busch, and his legal team will receive a flat, ready, $3.5 million in fees and expenses, about 11% of the potential payout to consumers. The settlement applies only to Beck's beer sold at retail outlets, not at bars or restaurants. So what do you think about that? You know, those of you out there who drink Beck's beer, I've never had it, um, but those of you out there that do, now that you know that it's bottled, brewed here in the U.S. in St. Louis, are you going to stop drinking it? I would I'd love to hear this. If you are a Beck's beer drinker, give me a call at 347-855-8831. I'd love to hear what you have to say or, you know, post a note in the show notes. Um, I'd love to hear it because I have... Look, I understand what's going on. I understand the fact that they're saying it's from Germany and it's really not. And technically, yeah, technically, it's false advertising. And I think that um, Anheuser-Busch realized that, hey, look, we could argue this in court for the next five years. It's going to cost so much money to do so. Let's just settle this. There's a business call, business decision, which is why, just like in most settlements. I mean, I'm talking like 99.9% of settlements. There's always some waiver of liability, some denial of wrongdoing. And of course, we have that here. And I think it's just a business decision. Hey, let's just settle this and get this thing out of the way so we can move on and make more Beck's beer. And hopefully, the people who are getting the $50 checks are going to go back and buy more beer from us. I think that's the mentality. So, you know, the issue becomes, though, what is this about? I mean, is this really about justice? Is it about attorney's fees? I mean, 
five million dollars in attorney's fees and expenses. That's that's a nice chunk of change. Um, I don't know. I I understand it from a legal standpoint. I understand it from a marketing, advertising, you know, false advertising, deceptive, you know, standpoint. But I find it hard to believe that somebody would only drink the beer because it was supposedly brewed in Germany versus drinking the beer because it tastes good. I think that if I found out that something wasn't made in the company or the country where they said it was made, I don't know if I liked the product, if I liked the taste, I think I'd probably still drink it. I don't think I'd say, oh, I wouldn't have bought it if I had known it was made in Germany. It's, I don't know. That's kind of silly. But a successful lawsuit here for all Beck's purchasers. Um, remember, you've got to be a retail purchaser. You can't try to go and get 50 bucks from your local bar and because you, you bought Beck's on tap. All right, finally, let's talk about The Real Housewives. Obviously, you know, Bravo and The Real Housewives have made quite a name for themselves. Uh, there's a real housewife for everything. And this, if you recall, is uh, the New York star, Heather Thompson. Now, she's bringing a lawsuit concerning her brand, Yummy. And for those of you who watched the show, you're going to note that her brand yummy is really not exploited on the real housewives show and you can compare that with um the skinny girl product which is also manufactured by a new york housewife even though she's not really a housewife um bethany frankel she you know everybody knows bethany frankel she made that major deal for her skinny girl company she had a talk show for a little bit. Uh, she's going through a contentious divorce. So if you were a fan of the New York Housewives, you'll recall last season seeing Skinny Girl everywhere. Skinny Girl popcorn, Skinny Girl drinks. I mean, it was like, it was total in-your-face product placement. And some people would argue that it was almost obnoxious. Now, com compare and contrast that to Heather Thompson, who owns a company called Yummy. It's a clothing company. And tell me how many times you recall seeing references to the Yummy brand, and I bet you it is very few. Now, she's filed a lawsuit, and the lawsuit is against a, a partner of, of the, the brand. So what she says is that this is an unfortunate distraction. This is what she told Entertainment Tonight exclusively. I'm hoping for a positive result in a very short time so I can get back to focusing on what's important, the business of my ever-expanding yummy brand. Now, Thompson is suing the manager of her brand, Eric Rothfeld, claiming that Rothfeld hurt the brand by not allowing Real Housewives of New York cameras to film in the yummy building. Thompson and her team are also attempting to replace Rothfeld as the brand's manager, a process made more difficult by the fact that Rothfeld is also a part owner. In an email submitted to the court, Rothfeld is seen instructing employees not to allow any connection between Yummy and the Real Housewives of New York. Effective immediately, under no circumstances are you to spend any time discussing or working with Heather on Real Housewives of New Jersey, Rothfield, Rothfeld wrote. No samples should be provided to Heather for Real Housewives, and Real Housewives is not authorized to film in our offices. Also, there is to be no company money spent 
for Real Housewives of New York. Motion hearings are set for October 30th on this case, and Thompson spoke to Entertainment Tonight in September about leaving the reality show after three years, citing her obligation to Yummy as a major factor in her decision. The reality of it is that I just can't do it anymore, she admitted. I have to focus on the things that are really, really important in my life, and that's my family and my business. While I'm filming the show, I'm also running a multi-million dollar business, and it takes away a lot of my time from the company. That's interesting. Um, here you've got a woman who has not had her brand featured on a Real Housewives show, and you look at some of these other women out there who have made a killing because their brand was featured on the show. And I'm talking about, you've got Ramona, don't know her last name, but she makes a Pinot Grigio. And people buy it simply because they see it on the show. You know, the Real Housewives of New Jersey, Teresa Judice, she made a wine, people were buying it. Obviously things changed when she ended up going to jail. Um, but the point being that if it's on the show, it's going to sell. And the same with the Manzos, who are, for those of you in North Jersey, know that they own the Brownstone, which is a pretty successful catering and um, um, you know banquet hall in North Jersey. And they're pushing their products, their sauces and things like that, on, on their show. So shameless self-promotion, I think the, the queen of it, is skinny girl and what was done last season um but here you've got on the other extreme an individual who owns a company and that company is not featured or promoted on the show now it's interesting because i i wonder what the actual relationship is between rothfeld and thompson and what were these discussions if any you know before filming wouldn't you know Thompson say to Rothfeld, hey, listen, this is going to benefit our product line. This is going to benefit our company. So it only makes sense that we would want this to happen. And then Rothfeld could have said, no, I think it's going to damage the brand, whatever it might be. But I'm interested to know what the discussion, the dialogue was before he pulled the trigger and sent the email that said, hey, we're shutting this down. There's to be no contact with Heather about Real Housewives and we're not letting them in to the offices to do any filming. You know, I, it, it's hard to believe and I don't know enough about the factual issues. Uh, hopefully we'll find out more about them as this litigation moves forward. But I would think that there would have been a discussion before the filming. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's interesting though, because it just does seem to me like you'd want to promote the brand unless you really believe based upon some rational and reasonable um you know factual issue that by putting the brand on the real housewives show you're going to somehow decrease the value cheapen the brand i i get that i mean there are certain shows that maybe um you know you wouldn't want to be associated with maybe you know you wouldn't want to have your product, if it was a tattoo show, um, if, if that's not the image that you're trying to portray. I don't know. Um, it, it's really 
a decision that needs to be made by the people in charge. And it appears that Rothfeld made the decision. Um, I would just like to know the inner workings of that company and how, even though he's a part owner, I mean, was there a vote? Was there a discussion? Was this put up to committee? How was this decision ultimately made? Because we're talking about Thompson being on the show for three years. So over the course of the three years, what happened after the first year? Wasn't there a discussion? Why isn't Yummy being promoted on the show? Or after the second year? You know, we're now after the third year, there's this litigation. So that's something that we don't know, hard to speculate on, but clearly an interesting case from my point of view. I'd like to see what happens here and, uh, you know, what are the damages? Because here you get into a scenario where the damages are theoretical, hypothetical damages in a sense. Here's what we believe the company would have made. Here's how the company would have benefited had this happened. Now, there's always, and again, this is pure speculation on my part, there's always another angle, which is maybe they want Rothfeld out and there'll be some settlement or resolution uh, to get him out in lieu of seeking damages for you know these these allegations. You never know. You don't know if that's the play, if the play is just to get him out and it's easier to get him out uh, this way as opposed to trying to reach a resolution and you know kick him off of, of the management committee and the, the ownership. I don't know. Interesting though, we will certainly follow this. This is a good show. Um, or not a good show, but it's a good uh, issue to watch, especially in light of of you know the popularity of the Bravo shows. I mean, really, if you look at Bravo, just is just taking a step aside for a second. If you look at Bravo as a as an advertising marketing machine, unbelievable. Andy Cohen has done a wonderful job with respect to promoting these Real Housewives shows. It seems as though everything that Bravo touches turns to gold. People love the voyeuristic element of watching somebody else's life. Um, unfortunately, with certain situations like the Judices, I think that that probably hurt them. And I think they probably had an impact on their sentencing, too, um, because of the way that they were presented. But on the flip side of that, I know that Bravo's just completed a three-episode short series catching up with Teresa in jail, and I'm sure that they made a significant amount of money from that, which would help them not only run the household while um, you know Teresa's in jail, and then her husband Joe will go in when when she's released, uh, but also I think a major um, supplement to repaying the restitution that the court ordered. So Bravo's done uh, just an amazing, an amazing job. And every single product that's been on, it sells just because people see it on TV. So I think that, um, I mean, and, and I, I'm going back thinking about all of the products, bangle bracelets and, or cup bracelets, something like that. Then, then you've got obviously Skinny Girl, which was a huge success because prior to being on the show, Bethany Frankel was really pounding the pavement to promote the brand. And, and you know, it, it grew. Some will argue that it was going to grow organically anyway, 
despite the show, but I think that the majority of, of people who are analyzing the business model will say that, no, it was really her popularity on the show that fueled the, the growth of Skinny Girl at such a high rate. You know, because you figure while she's been working on it for years and years and years and not to take away at all from the hard work that she put in it to build the brand and build the product, it really, really took off once she was on the show. And that translated into a multi-million dollar deal. So interesting why Heather Thompson's brand's not featured, why it was, uh, you know, uh, blocked from being on the show. Love to know what happens behind the scenes there at that company. Hopefully we will find out. All right, well, that's the news for today. That's going to do it. That's our, our weekly uh, business and legal week in review. Now, we've got a bunch of shows coming up this week. Don't forget, tomorrow is legal Q&A, and we're going to be talking about uh, pro se representation. What can you do if you cannot afford an attorney and you represent yourself? Are there options available to you? How can you get help? We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Then on Wednesday, we've got our business Q&A. And then Thursday, our understanding business show. Stay tuned for a completely, completely redone, um, brand new utlradio.com that is in the works. And hopefully you will find that even easier to use than the, the current site. Don't forget, if you are going to go check out utlradio.com to get your free Top 10 Legal Writing Tips for the Non-Lawyer. It's in a box on the right-hand side on the homepage. All you've got to do is click on the box and get your download. It's completely free. And it's going to help you. It's going to give you 10 tips to make your legal writing better. And this isn't just writing court documents. This is writing a letter to the neighbor next door whose tree has grown over into your property or to the neighbor that parks in front of your driveway and makes it difficult for you to get out. So you should check that out. It gives you those top 10 uh, tips for legal writing. Also, I want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you want to do me a favor, it would make me so happy if you guys would rate us on iTunes. Um, I couldn't begin to tell you how much it means to me when I get the comments and the feedback, and I know that what we're doing is helping people. It, it really makes me feel like all of the time and, and money and effort that I put into the show and in, into utlradio.com, that it's all worth it. And I love getting you know, fan mail and I love hearing from you guys out there. And so if you would be so kind, I would really appreciate it if you could post something on iTunes and subscribe to the show there. And then don't forget that there's also a YouTube show not exactly identical to this. We cover different uh, topics. There's a lot of law basics of videos where we talk about how to do certain things with respect to the law, summary judgment, motion for um, you know, default or dismissal. We talk about those things on the YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to that channel as well so you are notified when new episodes come out. That link can be found at utlradio.com. Um, and, you know, you can always contact me via Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, by leaving comments on Blog Talk Radio or YouTube, or by emailing me 
directly at info at utlradio.com. I know a lot of you have taken me up on that offer and you have contacted us and I've spoken to you and we've talked about your you know, particular issue or something that you have going on or a comment that you, you made. And uh, I really do my best to speak to absolutely every single person who, who contacts me. So thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And don't forget that if you need business cards, okay, whether you're a small business, entrepreneur, or a large business, you want to make a memorable impression, you want a top-notch uh, edge painting business card, well, go to oobly.com, that's O-U-B-L-Y.com, and don't forget to enter the code O-U-B-L-Y-U-T-L, the number 10, to get 10% off your first order. Again, that is O-U-B-L-Y-U-T-L-10, to receive 10% off your first order business card at oogly.com. Well, that's going to do it for today. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. Don't forget to leave your comments, questions, contact us so that we can make this show better and better every episode. And also, don't forget to let your family and friends, your colleagues know about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time.